It's nice to be ushered in right away. <clears throat> Amen? Amen. Um, well, good morning. I'm Jim. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Um, we're really glad to be able to enter into worship with you. We kind of shift at this point in the service, and we, we really believe that you're also worshiping with your mind by engaging in the Word and seeing what God might have for you, and, and this morning is no different. Um, you know, gosh, we got a lot to talk about today. I feel like... Um, going to make it weird because we're going to get into, into some scripture really as a, as a large bulk of what this message is today, which instead of just hearing me yap, I mean, you're still going to hear me yap, but it's instead of just my voice telling you yada, 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 we're going to let Jesus actually do the talking, preaching 101, make it weird right away and let him know it's going to be weird. So that's where we're going today. So as we kind of get in there, uh, would you turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 13? Uh, maybe you have a Bible. If you don't, that's okay. If you want one, there's one in the back. Otherwise, you can use your devices wherever it is. Um, but if you like to follow along, Matthew 13 is where we'll be. We will spend a lot of time throughout there, but initially we'll land on verse 44. So let's pray as we begin. God, I thank you so much for the power of your spirit. I thank you that uh, your word is not just a thing where we get to uh, sort of engage in come up with a good line or a good nugget here or there that works good on, well on cross-stitch or on bumper stickers or on T-shirts or crosses. I mean, those aren't bad things, but, but we know that your word is larger than that. We know that in, in Corinthians, it's actually food. It's solid food. It's meat. It's, 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 it's larger, deeper, longer-lasting than just a nugget of wisdom here or there. Your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, dividing even to the deepest places of who we are. So, so Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you do the things that you do um, as we enter into your word today? And all of God's people said, amen. 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 Let's, let's begin. In verse 44, it says this. This is Jesus talking. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, He hid it again, the treasure, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. And again, Jesus actually reiterates the point here by telling another parable. He says this, verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Now, we, we, we know in scripture it says the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word does what? Stands forever, right? Right, so that's where we are today. So we're gonna hang on to, to verses 45, 40, uh, 44, 45, and 46, this question of what is deeply valuable to us and our willingness to sacrifice any and all things for it, all he had and everything he had, um, for the sake of what we consider to be very, very valuable. So at the beginning of that, let me tell you a little bit about a story of a company you, some of you may have heard of. If you are familiar with the term, um, I don't know, uh, welcome back, Cotter, or maybe the term the Waltons, or maybe you've sat in an Azars or a Shoney's Big Boy, or you drove by on the highways a Stuckey's, Although these days you drive by the ruins of Stuckey's if you're on some interstates, right? That's kind of comical. Um, you may have heard of a little company that I knew back in the day called Kodak, right? For some of you that don't know what those were or indeed what Kodak is, Kodak at the time was to photography very similar to what this is today, right? This is the phone. We don't use phones for phones, do we, for the most part? I mean, some of you weirdos do. Just kidding. You talk on it, blah, blah, blah. No, instead, we, you know, we're like, ooh, you know. 
It makes for a good compact, but it also makes for a good selfie. You can take photos of yourself, of others, of your dessert, of the sushi that you got. I mean, you can take photos of all kinds of valid and completely invalid things. Kodak back then was, was photography. At the end of the day, you were, you were either taking a picture on a Kodak Instamatic, because that was what got it into the hands of us regular folk, or you were, process, you were getting your, your pictures taken on Kodak film, and you were developing Kodak film. And God rest its weary soul today. Kodak is still breathing, still doing fine. If losing half a billion dollars in 2020 is fine, it's still fine. But it never really, I mean, for some reason, it just couldn't keep up with that whole thing called digital photography, right? Or could it? Or could it? Because in reality, some of you may know this already, Kodak actually figured out digital photography before anyone else did. Kodak figured out digital photography before anyone else did. So enough with that messy fluid and the dark room and having to cloister yourself off to develop these things that may end up developing weeks later, right? These days, young people, you have instant gratification. Back then, it may be, if you, were, if you had responsible parents, it may take a couple weeks, right? But if you had me as a parent, it may take four or five years <laughs> before you'd get that, that, that film developed. But... You know, Kodak just, they didn't just not do anything with this technology. Um, They actually stifled it. They suppressed it. The engineer, the design engineer that actually came up with it that was on staff at Kodak, pitched it to the executives. The executives didn't just not do anything with it. They told him, you can't tell anyone about it. Don't tell anyone about it. You want to know why? Because the executives looked out their office windows And they saw this sprawling complex representing dozens and dozens of millions of dollars, all devoted to infrastructure, all devoted to film development and cameras and that sort of thing. Everything involving the development of photography based on film. And they they not only saw the infrastructure, right? They also saw the market. They looked at the numbers and saw the market that they absolutely controlled and dominated. I mean, it was just them, essentially, And then they saw all the money that they and their shareholders were raking in by controlling and dominating this market. And they really believed that the best thing for us to do is to suppress this information, suppress the technology, not mess with it. You know what we're going to do? In 1978, they patented the first digital camera. 1978. But they figured that that the worst case scenario is that they would ride out the patents and make money on them anyway. Little did they know, by suppressing it and waiting, others eventually caught up, figured the thing out on their own, and left them in the dust, right? And not only was the cost, the, 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 the cost, the opportunity lost what they didn't make, but it was also what they didn't do. Because those, that try, those organizations, those companies that tr- decided this is the direction they wanted to go, many of them weren't just companies that wanted to make a thing to, or to rake in what they, the, best, the most they could take, right? Because essentially, you know, Kodak is playing hungry, hungry hippos with the market. I got to get all I can while I can, right? These other companies decided, I think I might want to do this thing that changes the world. And in essence, they ended up doing that. So... They had, at the end of the day, Kodak short-sighted game. It was short-sighted, but it was also tunnel vision. 
that would end up being for them a lot of things lost and also the ability to run into something much, much larger. Um, there was a long-term and more expansive investment that they could have made into something that would have outlasted them. It would have been a legacy for the long-term and probably would have sustained who they are and what they do today, even more so than whatever's kept them ticking for now, limping along. But now most of you, I get to this place at the end of the story, and I just said this to, to the first service too. You're all like, thank you so much for the big business commentary, Jim, but I'm really only mostly concerned that the Packers play at 10 or that I was almost out of peanut butter when I made my toast. <laughs> what does this have to do with me? Where, where is the real-life application for this? Because currently, I don't know if you've checked, but I did not lose a half a billion dollars last year. No, we're in a, we're in a series uh, focused on following Jesus together. Um, and if you weren't here the last couple of weeks, we've been challenged, especially two weeks ago, Doug challenged us with being covered in the dust of our rabbi, right? And, and, and last week, an even larger challenge, which is to essentially storm the gates of hell and go into the dark places, the places that we don't necessarily want to, by following Jesus, the rabbi, who, who does cover us in his dust as we go there. So that's where we've been. But you remember that image, right, of, of, of young students, of disciples, being so, so closely following their rabbi, so closely following their teacher, that they can't help but be covered in his dust in first century Judaism, Right? To such a degree to where the vernacular at the time, one of the common blessings was essentially that. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And we're, we're exploring that today. When we look at, at being covered in the dust of our rabbi, when we look at following Jesus together, all within the context of this Jesus that we've talked about now for easily a couple of years. I mean, I remember back to when we were going through the Beatitudes, talking about the kingdom of heaven and who Jesus was saying he is. <sighs> We're seeing that to follow him with our lives, which, by the way, I believe is different than following him in our lives, right? Because one is following him with my whole life. The other one is finding a way to put him into my life. That is not the same thing, right? Following him with our lives, as we spoke last week and we started hearing as Doug's talking about it, and even as we got the imagery of that, that, that what they called the gates of hell, that cave, right, uh, within which I think demons at times were even worshipped, I go, man, that's uncomfortable. Because <laughs> metaphorically speaking for my own life, I can tell you that they're alive and real doing the things they do in our world today, even in our own Life in it, and as even as we look at all of that, what we're being called into, being covered in the dust of our rabbi, following Jesus together, we are being invited into building God's kingdom with Him together here on earth. We are not building an eternal retirement uh, policy within which someday we'll all be carted off to God knows where to do to, to play harps and sit on clouds. And I, I, I don't know about you, but I like sitting on clouds and playing harps. And if you think that's not true, yeah, I'm not true. So, but he's calling us into something much, much larger. But the world today speaks in opposition of that. The world today doesn't want us, I mean, not necessarily intentionally, I think some intentionally, but really it's the opposite direction for the world today. It really would have us, our world shrink. It would have your world and my world shrink. And, and again, maybe it's not really applicable for you, but every time I see someone do this, including myself, it's metaphoric because it wants the world to shrink to where we do not much. And maybe it has nothing to do with a phone, but it only has to do with me, right? It wants our world to shrink. It wants us to become isolated, self-focused, to be separated from others, uh, simply surviving and coping, right? Alone, essentially. 
I mean, I don't know about you, but if the last time you looked at the suburbs, there are mental health, relational issues, not only in young people, but in grown adults, no matter what the income is, it almost might be a tied to the level of income that it is, where every, many, many people are just plain empty because everything they're drinking, everything they're eating, everything they're internalizing is not fulfilling. Life is filled with a thousand micro decisions per day. Every day, it is easy to find ourselves in that shrunken life place where we're coping more than hoping, right? Where we're surviving more than thriving. That's so churchy. Hoping more than, no, what I say? Coping more than hoping, surviving more than thriving, preaching 101 number two, annoy them with rhyme or alliteration, okay? So there you go. So seriously though, talking about following Jesus our rabbi and following him together I mean, I remember particularly when Doug was talking about, yeah, this is where I feel like God is leading us and we're going there. And I was like, yeah. Until I start paying attention to the micro decisions in my life. I go, man, attention rises up in me that says, I don't know, quite frankly, I don't always wanna. (laughs) I don't know if I wanna do this. At least not always. Now put down your pitchforks. It's not that I don't love Jesus, right? I love Jesus, but I will say that looking at the, the, the coping strategies and my distraction-oriented habits of life, and, and, and I would on many levels rather not see the expansive view. I'd really rather just go back to my tunnel vision and my short-sightedness to live kind of the way I want to because my distractions, my escapes, my, my affections, directions, and decisions, they've helped me cope kind of, it, I've limped it along, but I guess I'm doing all right. I'm not beating myself up. I'm just here to say that doing life in the micro decisions of following Jesus together, when you really get detailed about it, and I'm not just talking about signing up for worship or signing up for small groups, but I'm talking about the unsung moments when no one sees. I'm talking the unspoken thoughts that no one hears. I'm talking the ones that maybe I'll even throw into a conversation you may not even notice, and some of you probably are wise enough to see it. I go, man, it isn't always easy. And I'll go, I'll go even further to say, I'm not even sure I would always want to follow him there because, man, that's uncomfortable, especially when you see him storming the gates of hell, bringing us to places where it's really, really, really hard. And yeah, sure, it's about forgiving someone that you don't want to forgive. Yep, absolutely. Sure, it's about giving when it's painful financially to, to tithe or whatever. Absolutely. Sure, it's about going to small group when you're really tired and you don't want to do it anyway and you just feel emotionally empty anyway, absolutely. But I tell you, it's larger than that and it's tinier than that and it's in the everyday. Many places that I don't want to storm the gates of hell because the gates of hell are often in my own habits. The gates of hell are often the unsung, the quiet, the socially acceptable ways that you, they're socially acceptable just because they're off the table. You'd never see the things I think. You'd never see the directions of my heart. With all that being said, we're here in Matthew 13, and we're talking about Kodak. Um, and you and I aren't running multi-million dollar organizations. We're not inventing technologies that alter the course of human history. Oh, maybe you are, and I just don't know it. Maybe I am, and you just don't know it. Um, but, but maybe the takeaway, really, regardless of what we're doing and where we're going, is this. Maybe what we need to do is, is figure out how we can see with infinite eyes Eyes that see the infinite game or, or, or the infinite possibility that comes in God's kingdom and what it means to be a part of building God's kingdom and, and God's kingdom resonant in and around and through my own heart. 
versus the short-sighted and often tunnel vision ways that I want to inject my own kingdom into the the equation and I just want to protect my shareholders, (laughs) my stakeholders. I want to protect my technologies. I want to protect all of what my infrastructure is that's out there when I look out my office window. My life life is mine and I I don't want anyone to mess with it. So the question is really, what kind of eyes are we seeing through? Because if you're... Do I, the question is this, do I see, and this is the big one for the day, do I see God's kingdom through eyes that recognize its incredible worth in my micro decisions? Let me say that again. Do I see God's kingdom through eyes that recognize its incredible worth in my micro decisions? Is it worth changing them? And not just having a bullet list of all the great ways I'm being a churchy Christian, right? If you're like me, I gotta be honest, the answer is yes, the answer is no, the answer is sometimes, and the answer is maybe, <laughs> right? I mean, come on, help me out, or else I'm the only one, right? I believe God, he, he, I, here's the deal, I know the answer to all of us, for all of us, is yes, no, maybe, and sometimes. Because I think, you, depending on the day you ask this, yeah, absolutely, I'm all in, I want to see with infinite eyes, and then other days, man, I'm, I'm just so overwhelmed with fear, anger, frustration, hurt rejection, woundedness, I wish they all understood me better, whatever it is. We're so into that that we can stop seeing long and stop seeing side to side. We can only see our world and it shrinks. With that being said, I believe God has something for each of us here. And I believe that there is no, and I said this, kind of, it just popped out of my mouth, it wasn't even written down, but I, I believe this in the first sermon. I said, There is no sentence I can tell you. There's no series of sentences I can tell you that's gonna do the work on the landscape of your heart and the soil of your life to change your micro decisions. I can maybe muster in you sin management, right? We can guilt ourselves into that. Sin management's all good to go. I can maybe get you to volunteer a little more, give a little more, sign up for this, sign up for that. Maybe give your tools and your, 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 your skills and all of those kinds of things and your gifts and your, some of your resources, absolutely. And those are not bad things. And please do it and sign up for a trunk and bring candy. Because 1,100 people got an invitation that says this place is gonna have candy and cool trunks and chili. And y'all, we need to show up. Hallelujah. Come on, you should be way more riled. Thank you. I was like, I should, I should have said this in the, in the first service. Anyway. Anyway, but there's no sentence I can come up with that's gonna tell you, that's gonna get you to do the work in the landscape and the soil of your heart that the, only the Holy Spirit can do. Thus, let's get weird. So, Today, I believe that Jesus is gonna talk to us in Scripture, so we're gonna be very heavy on Scripture for a whole section of this sermon right now. It's gonna be very unusual because usually we give you a digestible part and then we go blah, blah, blah and we tell you all kinds of stuff and that's great and as the Spirit of God uses it, but I believe today what we're supposed to do is kind of enter into this whole section that Jesus talks about when he's referring to the kingdom and when he's referring to the kingdom in you and he's when, when he's referring to the kingdom that you and I are called to build, right? So it's gonna be a little odd, it's gonna be a little unique. More preaching 101, reinforce how weird it's gonna be to make everyone super uncomfortable. So are we ready? You're ready, okay. So Jesus has been here in Matthew 13, you can get to verse 10 and just hang out there. Jesus has been teaching on the parable of the seed and the sower. And we're gonna read through this slowly together in a lot of ways. If you've ever heard the term Lectio Divina, that's what we're gonna do a piece of today. But really, to emphasize what I mean is what we're going to do is we're going to enter in intentionally into this, intentionally inviting the Spirit to guide our minds even as we read through a huge section. Usually I give you a small enough section to where you may have a precept that we can all hang on. 
but we risk it all, right, as, as speakers, we risk it all when we just give you this giant section. Who knows willy-nilly where God's gonna lead you people, right? But amen. The Spirit of God, I believe, in this section, particularly on his kingdom and particularly the way it talks about soil and hearts and seeds, I believe he's gonna do the work that, that, I, can't, that I can't do, and it also, it gives us the ability, it gives us sort of a practicum, if you will, on how to do this at home. Because for a lot of us, it's easy to go, okay, God, guide me in scripture, plop it open, and here we are. Or guide me in scripture, following my, read the Bible by, by, by the year. Absolutely great, 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 great. But I tell you this, there is an, it's a beauty and there is value. And again, think infinite eyes, right? Infinite eyes, long-term. Maybe the payoff is decades away, but if we habituate ourselves to certain things and open up to the fact that God might engage me differently than he ever has before, no matter how long I've been doing it, by trying this new different thing, who knows what's down the road for us. So, okay. So I'll ask you to take the micro decisions of your life. I mean, we, have, we all have them, right? It's the way I say things to other people. It's how I interact, and I'll, I'll bullet list some of those. We're gonna take the micro decisions of our life and kind of hang them up there, and in the context of talking with the Holy Spirit, say, Holy Spirit, I really need you. As we enter in this word, these are all my things. I'm gonna leave this open for you, Lord. For instance, I'm gonna leave open my interactions with people that I like and that I dislike. I'm gonna leave that open season for you, God, whatever you need to say. The stories of beauty or the stories of brokenness that I either see and hear or refuse to see and hear. Because sometimes I'm just so angry, I don't want to hear anything good. Or I want ammunition against maybe them, I don't know. So I don't want to know what good is going on that God might be doing through and in and around them. Or maybe they're the stories of brokenness that I don't, I don't want to hear, man. It just gets a little furry because now I'm going to hear something and now I'm going to be called to do a thing. I just don't want you to get me down. Like, we don't want to hear some of the good or the bad, right? So we're going to hang that up for you, Holy Spirit. We're going to hang out. Okay, here it gets awkward. Oh, I've got to talk about that word. Expenditure of resources, including money. No one wants to hear it, right? Time. And energy. Now, we like time and energy. It's easy to talk about, but money, we don't like that. But in regards to all of those resources, the question has mostly to do with the quickness of flow, the velocity of flow. How quickly, and this is what we're giving up to God, examining with our hearts, how quickly is the velocity of flow of my resource to the things that I want it toward versus what God might want it toward? And that's money, time, energy, attention, all of those things. Here's another one that we'll hang up there. How we deal with our failures, failing others, failing God, failing ourselves. How do we deal with that? Lord, I'm gonna hang that up there. I'm also gonna approach, hang, I'm gonna approach how I hang, how I, huh, I'm gonna hang up there how I approach my wounds, the ones that I've been given as well as the ones that I give. And not just the ones that I give to others, but the ones that I give to myself. Lord, these are all the places that I'm open to, even as I'm in your word. Would you speak to me? And lastly, I would say this, and I, you, can, I'm already, you can probably already pick up where I'm going. Hold loosely the expectations that we normally have on reading scripture together on a Sunday morning. Because again, we have a normal rhythm to it. This is very, very different. Um, allow, in fact, I know that you wanna, what our tendency is to try, I gotta lasso my mind, Jim, because all it wants to do is I need to know whether my wide receiver is gonna get 14 points or 12 points. No, and that's good. Just so you know, my, one of my wide receivers got 30 points the other day. Anyway, Thursday night. See, I'm back. So, 
I know that we want to lasso our minds while I'm reading this, especially you want to stay close to the flow of what this giant chunk of scripture is, but this is what I would encourage you to do. Allow God to migrate your mind to where he wants you to be. If you sense a word or a phrase or an image there that he wants you to linger on, don't hesitate to stay. I'll keep going, but you don't hesitate to stay. Does that make sense? For those of you that don't necessarily have a Bible, you don't need to. If you just close your eyes and kind of follow along, picture what we're doing, you'll hear me interject a couple times, but that's really about it. So let's invite God into the question, will we? And we'll do it by engaging him in the scripture. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your spirit. We know and we entrust ourselves to you that you guide us. So even as we do this this morning and we, we jump into Matthew 13, verse 10, and we, and we move down there, we know, we know, we know you guide us. You have the power to guide even the, even the most wily of hearts and minds. So would you take our energy, our rambunctiousness, the way we wander in attention and thought, and even now, Bring us in. In Jesus' name, this time is yours. Amen. Matthew chapter 13. Actually, we'll start with verse 13. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such crowds, oh, I'm sorry, it is verse, it's verse uh, one. 13, 13 verse one. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? You can imagine that question, right? Why why don't you just say what you need to say to me, Jesus? Jesus. He replied that the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Those who have will be given more and they will have in abundance. As for those who do not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak in parables, though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, you will be ever hearing but never understanding, you will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and in turn, I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. Truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see but did not see it, and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When people hear the message about the kingdom and do not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their hearts. This is the seed that was sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to people who hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. 
The seed falling among the thorns refers to people who hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, because money is a liar, the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to people who hear the word and understand it. They produce a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. And that's the end of our reading for today. And the question is whether we'll see the kingdom through finite or infinite eyes. And it begs a couple of questions even as you enter into a chunk of this. Lord, what might you have for me? What, what word might you have for me in there? Or maybe for another way to look at it after that, I would say start there. But another one is what word would you have for all of us today, Lord? This is an exercise that you can repeat at home, and I would encourage you, encourage you, encourage you. Maybe meditate on it this week. Maybe your devotions this week are just going back and reading, rereading through that. And I will tell you that it is helpful at times to reread it out loud. Sometimes hearing scripture spoken is very, very powerful, especially even if it's among couples, back and forth. But the question of whether we'll see through finite or infinite eyes, right, in all of this stuff, it begs a series of questions. It's a question, and we hear it, you can hear it in there as the seed, we're talking about seed, and whether or not it's, it's reaching us, and whether or not it's getting into our hearts, and whether or not it's getting into our minds. There's a series of questions. It's a question of seeing long-term versus seeing short-term. Am I seeing infinitely, or am I just in my little zone in my shrunken and isolated world. It's a question of seeing past the lies of wealth or of treasure um, and into the truth of entrusting all of it to Jesus. It's a question of restructuring our lives, of habit, of fears, of frailties, of worries, and of idols, and, and, and discomfort avoidance. I think a lot of us are professionals at discomfort or awkwardness avoidance. And we, re, we are willing to restructure conversations at best, lives at worst, to avoid those things. It's a question of finding the courage to move towards peace, hope, and being the first to lay down weapons, even if the other one has one. And did you know that sometimes the weapon that we're laying down is the fact that you're right? Did you know that? It's so easiest for us to think, oh, well, I'm just going to lay down those weapons of calling them names. I'm going to lay down the weapons of manipulation. I'm going to lay down the weapons of this or that. Sometimes laying down your weapons is simply laying down the fact that maybe, 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 even if I'm right, Jesus still died for me, for my shame, for my brokenness. It's also a question of, of what we hold as treasure, what we hold as valuable. It's a question of, 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 of seeing coping, distraction, and escapism for what they really are. All of those things, seeing them for what they really are, that they are not of the kingdom and that they are micro decisions that move us away from that. It's a question of what kingdom we choose, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of our world, our shrunken world and its micro decisions. A reminder, Jesus rearranged all the price tags. And by the way, it was a giant overhaul when he did it in Matthew 5, verses 3, goodness, down to, to 12, right, in the, in the Beatitudes particularly. He took all of the Goodwill prices and he stuck them on Macy's. He took of all the Macy's prices and he stuck them on, on Goodwill. And he said, this is what it is. And not only did he do that, he then said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad with exceeding gladness. 
Because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus, this was an overhaul. This was a kingdom overhaul. So with a huge series of questions that are begged the moment he starts talking through the parables in Matthew 13. Jesus' words from 13 and 5 beg quite practical and uncomfortable questions about how you and I are to apply this notion of following Jesus. The practicality at the end of the day is, okay, how do I follow Jesus together? What does it mean for me to have the dust of my rabbi, right? What does that mean? What does that look like? Even more preaching 101. Once they're uncomfortable with weirdness, keep going. Um, Seriously, I I think a lot of of the how-to is answered by the level of value that we ascribe to the kingdom of God. Let me say that one more time, and that's why we're in 1344, 45, and 46. A lot of the how-to and its applicability in, in following Jesus together and in being covered in the dust of our rabbi, not only the how-tos but the weather-tos, whether or not and the how-tos, are all wrapped up in how valuable we really believe the kingdom of heaven is. Is the kingdom of God worth this? Disrupting my schedule. Is it worth disrupting my schedule for the sake of someone in need? Is it worth disrupting my schedule for the sake of someone in need repeatedly? Is it worth disrupting my schedule for the sake of maybe the community? Or is it worth disrupting my schedule right now in the unsung moments, in the unsung, quiet, tiny places that may not look like they've shown fruit at all, but will show fruit way down the line? Is it worth an investment right? Is it worth the long term? Not the Kodak long term, but the real long term. Is it worth upending what I used to believe, consciously or not, about this or that? Yes, politics. Yes, society. Yes, identity. Yes, career. Yes, my parenting. All of the above. Is, is, it, willing, is, it, is it worth me being willing to rethink what I really thought I believe and was raised in? for the sake of the gospel? Is it worth ignoring the insatiable desires of my ego, my desire to feel like I am viewed a certain way by you or by others and therefore will bolster my own identity? The, the tiny places where I can say all day long, oh, I'm all in to follow you, I'll storm the gates of hell with you, I'll sign up for small groups, I'm gonna talk and I'm gonna be honest and authentic, I'm gonna do all these things, but it's still, uh, there's a thousand micro decisions where you never heard what I thought about me. Or there's, there's dozens of moments where I peppered something in the way I talked to you, not only as a pastor, but just in general as a friend, where I needed you to see me a certain way. Or maybe it's the way I leverage you know, my money toward a vehicle I can't afford so that it looks like I got something nice. Or maybe it's the clothes that I wear, the clubs that I'm a part of, the party that I'm affiliated with. Am I so fulfilled by, by signing up and making sure on the outside it all looks good, right? And then in the micro decisions, there's all these little things that are not me being covered in the dust of my rabbi, right? And feeding that insatiable ego. Those are, there's a thousand of these, right? Confront, is, it, is the kingdom of God worth confronting my fears of relationship, of being vulnerable to another person? where they might actually could hurt. There's risk, right, because they could hurt me. Or, or fears of truth, or fears of situations, or fears of, of being known, or of change, or of discomfort, all of those kinds of fears. Or is it worth enduring what I've at times called boredom when really it was just waiting, <laughs> right? 
boredom was just a good excuse to throw a word on it? Or is it worth being inconvenienced? And like I said repeatedly, is it worth dealing with messes or messy people? Is the kingdom of God worth dealing with messes or messy people? And yes, there are people of which I, I know who have been abused or used, and, and obviously there is a risk in, in those kinds of things, and I'm not talking to you really. Do, do, run from being used, right? But at the same time, there are simply messy people in our lives with messy relationships and messy situations. And I don't mean you gotta be completely covered in it, drowning in it, but uh, you know, how many people do we not have relationships with because we just feel they're too furry, right? Or is it too, is it, is it worth befriending awkwardness? You know, those awkward moments where I gotta get to know someone I don't know. Those awkward moments where I gotta do small talk, which is really hard for me. Or the awkward moments where I suddenly discover in that small talk that you believe something different than what I believe. And you equally believe it spiritually too. Or is the kingdom of God leaving, worth leaving behind all the idols we have? The idols where we cope? The idols of our escapism or of our habits or of our egos? Is it worth all those things? Which brings us back to Matthew 13, 44 through 46, where he talks about the value of the kingdom. Kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had, and he bought the field, all he had. And then, and then 46, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had, and he bought it as well. All he had and everything he had. It's not to be taken lightly, by the way, that, that it was all done joyfully. Right? It isn't, as if, um, it isn't as if he did the thing and then eventually, because he did the thing, he saw all this joy. He, did, he engaged in the joy as he was giving it all away. It was a joyous thing to let go of what would not fill him, what did not give his li- him life, what did keep his life shrunk. And remember, by the way, it isn't as if he had a Wells Fargo account. This wasn't, hey, I'll sell my my. This is horrible. I'll sell my goat. I don't know. I have no idea. Okay, first century Judaism. I'll sell whatever I had, right? And then I'll have my Wells Fargo account or I got that little offshore or I got a conservatively aggressive IRA, right? No, 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 no. The things that he had in his possession, all of his possessions were the things that were designed to not, they were not just representative of the infrastructure and all he had ever invested. They were, but they were also literally the tools of his future and where his future was banked. Maybe even his family. We don't know. It's a parable, right? He was banking past, present, and future. And it was worth it all. And I used to think it was total abandonment that he did this, but it was joyfully. I think it was intentional because he knew what he was doing. This is joy. I see the treasure. I'm going there. So then let's consider what our micro decisions in life reveal about what we treasure physically, spiritually, and the priority we place on it because what we treasure determines how we structure our lives. Let me say that again. What we treasure determines how we structure our lives. Dallas Willard says this, so to discuss our treasures is really to discuss our treasuring. We are not to pass it off as dealing merely with external goods or, or which are non-spiritual, or just physical stuff. It is to deal with the fundamental structure of our soul. It has to do with precisely whether the life we live now in the physical realm is to be an eternal one or not, and the extent to which it will be so. 
That's the end of the quote, and I'll add to this. We structure our lives based around what we hold most dear. We structure our lives based around what we hold most dear. This is why I know I keep saying that word micro decisions, because at the end of the day, I can probably get you and I, you know, we, we can all sign up for, for a couple things. We got outreaches coming, we got chili cook-offs coming, we got, we, got, we got Novembering, we got all kinds of things that we can do and be a part of the body of Christ, and they are good, and they are valuable, and they are spirit-led. But there is nothing I can say, there is no group that we have that is ever going to change the landscape of micro decisions, because that's where the soil of life is place where our egos get in the way, our pride gets in the way, our frustration, our fears, our anger, our worries, our doubts, our resentments, self-accusation, other accusation, judgment. We structure our mindsets and our hearts based around what we hold as most dear. So is the kingdom of heaven, is the stuff of Jesus that deep to us? I said it, sometimes it's hard. But I do believe this, humans go to what is valuable. And I'll tell you a little quick story. You know, preaching 101 number three, be self-referential way too much, which is what I do, so I'm gonna do it again. So this has actually not a lot to do with the church, but I think it has to do with the nature of humanity and what we do, and God created humanity, so let's go there. Many of you know my story. Uh, My mom, my natural mother, Japanese, she left when I was a year and a half old. My dad and I, um, we stood in an airport in North Carolina because the U.S. was way too hard on her. we watched her fly away. Back then, you could stand at the gate and watch them fly away, and that's what they did. Um, so, um, why did I get suddenly lost in my story? This is super weird. What am I gonna, there's just so much to share. So, she did that. Then, then my dad remarried, and, and eventually things went really south. There was some abuse, blah, blah, blah. When I was 16-ish, I left home. Um, and said, I'm going to find my natural mom. I knew for years that I had a natural mom and that, that obviously something had been up with my family. But then when I was in my 20s and in college, there's this thing started kind of emerging and we started realizing it was really a thing. It was called the internet. See, it's all day long, throwback Thursday jokes on Sunday. So, you know, the internet was becoming a thing and so I realized I could actually look for people. Um, and so I'm like, I'm going to try to find my mom. And so I look for people finding services. Back then, that was one of the first things that you could emerge and do. And colleges were, were doing all kinds of stuff too. But I couldn't, obviously, it was really hard. It, it's, it's impossible. I mean, Japan, we, when I was 12-ish, we had gotten one singular letter actually from my sister. And it had said, take, please take care of Junia. That's me because my, my name is um, something that was both uh, uh, English as well as Japanese. So it was like, a, 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 you know, had a foot in both, basically. So take care of Junia kindly, is what she said. And, and oh, by the way, we're moving to Tokyo. <laughs> and so what my dad had known as sort of the original address was long gone anyway, um, but we never got a return address for Tokyo, Japan, one of the most populated cities like ever, right? So um, I kept looking for years. I would you know, try to find private agencies that would do stuff, blah, blah, blah. Um, lots of, it costs a lot of money, so I really was limited. But then, then in my, uh, you know, probably five, to five-ish, five or seven years ago, um, I started realizing that Facebook really was a thing, and, and not just Facebook, but particularly groups. And so I thought, why not, rather than focusing all my energies on Japan, why not just focus on sort of expats or maybe people that might be like me that are half Japanese and might um, know something. So I posted a few pictures I had and then a tiny bit of the story on what we call Heifu websites. Heifu is just half Japanese. It just, you know, because there's a lot of us, right? The bases are over there, blah, blah, blah. So, um, well, the first, uh, that first site I posted to, it got 
uh, forwarded and shared to a bunch of other pages on Facebook, other groups. And then someone said, hey, Jimmy, you should probably forward it to, the, you should probably post on this one Heifu website. And so I did. That one, um, one gal got like 300 shares, and then another couple got several hundred shares. And then off those shares, uh, there were several hundred shares. So it just exponentially grew. It got very big very quick. And eventually someone reached out to me directly, and they said, hey, Jim, um, we're from the Okinawa Genealogical Society, and we'd really like to, to take up your case. And so I'm like, sweet, I have nothing. <laughs> I got no money, I got no nada. And I got very little information. I got a bunch of pictures, and I've got an image in my head. I don't even have the paper. I can remember my dad's handwriting, and it said, uh, 121 Toborucho Nahashi Shuri, uh, Japan, and so, or Okinawa, Japan. And so I, I, that was just an address from literally 52 years ago, so I know nothing, right? And so, um, and I knew my mom's first and last name, and that was about it, and I knew I had a sister. So they took up my case, and for then for years, um, a couple, maybe it was, I think it was just a year, they, we did all kinds of cha- paperwork chasing with efforts to try and prove to the, the, the nation of Japan that I'm who I am so that they would let me know where she is. But they're super strict on that kind of thing. It's very, very locked down because basically, I mean, it's a tiny island, or it's islands, right? It's, everything is, all property is controlled by patriarchal family lineage. And so even if you own a house, you own a house on someone else's land, right? And so they're super uh, concerned. I'm not, I'm not seeing things, there's fuzz. Um, <laughs> get away, demons. No, so... Um, Lineage. So that hit, we had a brick wall, actually. There were people down at the town hall in Okinawa looking for me for it, and it turned out, no. We're not, we, I could prove that I'm related to you who's related to him, but I gotta be able to prove I'm related, and I don't know what that looks like because it sounds right to me, right? So at one point, the genealogical team, who are eight volunteers, said, a guy said, well, I'm just gonna go down to, down to Naha from, Okinawa, from Hawaii, and I'm gonna take a couple people, and we're gonna go knock on... on doors down near where that address was because it's all changed now anyway. But we'll knock on some doors down near that address because little old ladies, they know everything and they tell stories forever. If you know Asian mom, like Asian grandmas, like they're telling the, like, right? Like, yes, right? They tell the stories, they know. So they knocked on 11 doors. The eighth door was, was the address, was like, it was the closest thing to that address that doesn't exist. They knocked on that door, and that person said, I don't know that family. I don't know who used to live here, and we've lived here about 10 years. However, that restaurant across the street has been here for 75 years. And the little old lady that owns it has owned it for at least 50 years. So she's got to know. So they go over there. They talk to that lady, and that lady says, and, and we, they, were, they were particularly, anyway, that lady says, yes, I do remember her. She went off to the States with her daughter. She had a boy out there, left him back there when she divorced, came back. That daughter's sister-in-law was right there, across the street. So they knocked on that door. They found out who he is. They, had, they knew that he was in NHK News and, and blah, 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 and um, they knew his name. And so in the, in the middle of all of the waiting on them to kind of contact, they had told me his name. So I'm like, LinkedIn it is. So I looked up on LinkedIn. There he was. I reached out to him directly. And after 49 years, I was reuniting with my sister. She came here to Arizona in August to, to meet us. 
I tell you that story, and yes, it's great because it's emotional and, and you connect with my story. And that's, it, it's, I'm proud of it. I'm, it's powerful what God has done. It's just such a gift. But I tell you this because the question rises up, why? Why do people that I've never met and never will meet dedicate hours and hours and hours of their life for the sake of reuniting someone who had never met, hadn't had a conscious conversation at a year and a half old, right, in 49 years. Because people will structure their lives around what what matters the most and what is the most valuable to them. I tell you that because I believe that if a group of eight people who may or may not believe in Jesus, right, are willing to restructure their own lives and their own mindsets and their energies and direct their energies towards something for the sake of someone just because they valued reuniting so much, then what can the body of Christ do when we together so deeply value the kingdom of God and the invitation that Jesus has given us to be a part of building it together? What could we possibly accomplish? That, my friends, is what I would call the infinite game, the infinite eyes that see so much more than what my tiny world of shrunken stakeholders and keeping everything protected and safe um, would see. I want to encourage you today to consider going into Matthew 13 with Jesus and just hanging out there and be honest with him. Even if you have to say, Lord, I have not valued your kingdom like this. Or maybe you have and you just want to know, God, what is it that you, what, what could you call me to do? And, and you no, know, we're not all going to have this crazy story where we, we do whatever, but I do believe across the body of Christ that there's a, there's a wave building. There is a wave building. Out of COVID, it is not all defeat. This is the kingdom of heaven we are talking about. This is the Lord of the universe. There is more hope than ever, when there is brokenness and when there is frailty and when there is frustration and when there is anger and there is wounds and when there is fear, you know what I call that? I call that spiritual momentum and spiritual opportunity for the Holy Spirit of God to do something. But it's people. They gotta be mobilized based on micro decisions, based on what they hold dearest and being willing to structure their lives, their decisions, their mindsets, their directions, affections, and their decisions accordingly. The worship team's gonna come up. We're just gonna sing just because I go too, I've gone too long twice now. We're gonna just close in the chorus of our final song. But I tell you this, he split the sea so we could walk right through it. Our sins, our fears were drowned in perfect love. I'll tell you this, sometimes my seas and my oceans that, that he is splitting for me to walk through are my own frailties and my own anger and my own hurt my own resentments, my own wounds, my own shame. I'd encourage you to consider where he may be calling you. So would you stand as we, uh, we uh, get ready to sing? I'm gonna close us in prayer beforehand. God, I thank you so much for your spirit. I thank you that you are doing a thing here at Hope Covenant in the body of Christ. Would you lead us, Lord? Would you give us you? Would you open our hearts and move in us in your name?